You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, Episode 3. Welcome, listeners, to Thaisi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. My guest today is Kamini Mamdani, a community activist. Kamini, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. You were born and raised in one of the most charged and difficult political eras in modern history. Could you tell me about that? Sure. So I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. My grandparents had migrated to South Africa from Gujarat, India, at the turn of the century. And um, I was born during apartheid in 1969. And uh, we lived in Lanasia, which is a segregated town, which stood for Land of Asians. And it was located directly next to Soweto. And back then, um, Indians were segregated and only allowed to live in certain parts of the country. And uh, we were only allowed to go to school with other Indians. And the educational system there was very fragmented. And um, the funding for, for education was paltry for anyone who was a non-white. So uh, the infrastructure was very poor. The actual facilities were poor. The teachers were uneducated. They were ill-informed. And uh, it was very difficult to get a good education. So many of the Indians uh, left South Africa to work and study abroad. We had a lot of family members who went to medical school in Dublin, Ireland, and England, and then returned and practiced medicine in South Africa. I've I've been to South Africa only twice, both for work and the second time, or the first time I was there, I went to Soweto just to see the township itself and see the museum of, I think it was immigration, because I didn't realize there was such a rich and long history of immigrants coming into South Africa. And I think when we hear yeah. about apartheid in the States, it's always kind of like a black and white thing. It was the white people, the Dutch white people versus the black people of South Africa at least in the narrative that the limited narrative we hear in the States, Indians, Chinese people, people who are neither here nor there are left out. So when you reflect on how that narrative sounds to Americans, what are some of the things that you kind of inform somebody who may not know a lot about South African history when it comes to South Asians? So Mahatma Gandhi started his civil disobedience in South Africa, actually. Mm -hmm. He came to South Africa as a lawyer to work with non-whites who are being disenfranchised in the communities. And that's where he started his movement. So South Africans have a very rich history of diversity because everything was under British rule. So Mm -hmm. Indians were able to freely migrate there, which is when my grandparents moved. Um, I think about 4% of the population is of South Asian descent. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's grown since then. So we were marginalized. Uh, We didn't have the opportunity to vote. We didn't have the opportunity to access education. My father was one of two non-whites who was able to go to the university there at that point. So we were very marginalized. But what most Indians do, as they did in Uganda and other places, is they use their resources to build companies. They were very entrepreneurial. And so that's how they made their mark and how they were able to be successful in those communities. So were those businesses kind of a gateway to other races or was it all self-contained within the South Asian community? Um, Because of segregation, 
it was very hard to integrate the businesses uh, with other races. So Mm -hmm. um, we were confined to working in certain areas. We were confined to living in certain areas. We weren't allowed to own businesses. Uh, We weren't allowed to employ Black Africans. Everything that we did, if we did do those things, had to be done sort of secretly. So, for example, even if we had a domestic worker, which we did at our house, she lived with us, but that was, you know, it was illegal. And so I still remember daily raids where the police would come uh, knock on your door to see if there were any Africans who were living in your house. And, you know, we had to hide workers. We worked around the system because we didn't have an opportunity to do anything else. So in that sense, it was still, it was very difficult to work together. It, it was impossible. It was legally not possible to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think that there's a lot of violence in South Africa, because it takes generations before a country can recover from Mm -hmm. not having the opportunity to be educated and Mm -hmm. not having the resources to own land and not having the resources to build companies and and have, you know, meaningful work. There's a lot of poverty, which Mm -hmm. leads to crime, which is what's happening now. And so I think it takes time for a country to recover from something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So your family came over to the United States after South Africa, right? Yeah, they did. So we had moved briefly to Toronto, Canada. Mm -hmm. And when we were there, we had an opportunity to be in the school system, which was an incredible school system. But for my parents, it was too much of a cultural change. And so we moved back to South Africa. But when we moved back to South Africa, we had gotten a taste of what it was like to live in a a free country Mm -hmm. um, where education and the resources for education were so rich. And in fact, what happened was um, I'm the youngest of four and my brother at that time was in eighth grade. And when you went back to South Africa, the teacher had misstated that the capital of Canada was Toronto and he (laughs) raised his hand and corrected him. And back then corporal punishment was just part of your daily educational process. And so you know, he beat my brother up physically in front of the entire class. And my brother came home that day. And I still remember this. Um, He came home that day and he said, I can't, I can't live here anymore. And so I think that was sort of the last straw for us as a family. Um, Mm -hmm. It was time for all of us to leave. And so when we did, we migrated to the United States and we lived in a small town in Texas. At that time, my parents were trying to figure out where to live in the United States. And, you know, we didn't have the Internet, of course, Mm -hmm. back in 1979. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they used any resources they had, which was the newspaper and the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I still remember (laughs) my dad going through this process of trying to figure out where to live. And uh, we looked in New York. And at that time in the the late 70s, early 80s, New York was crime-ridden. So that wasn't an option. And then they looked at Florida, and Florida was filled with old people, um, which is what my dad said. <laughs> and uh, and then he was afraid that if we moved to California, there was a chance that, you know, San Francisco is going to have a major earthquake and <laughs> California would fall into the Pacific Ocean. And so they chose Texas of all places. Because sort of <laughs> it was safe for South Asians. <laughs> urban myths, yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, Texas has this really rich history of, yeah. um, of being very open to entrepreneurs and to, to, to businesses. And so mm-hmm. it was easy with the cost of living, um, the opportunities were just really tremendous. So we moved to a small East Texas town called Tyler, Texas. And we came from Johannesburg, which is the thriving metropolis and mm-hmm. um, uh, very diverse and rich. And, we, you know, we land in this tiny town and they were so taken back by us in a very positive way, even though it was a predominantly 
white and African-American community. They just were so warm and welcoming. Mm-hmm. They were intrigued by how we spoke. We had very thick South African accents. <laughs> they just were just completely sort of surprised by who we were. And so we were really, truly embraced in that community. And we had motel businesses, which is what a lot of Patel families sort of started out um, mm-hmm. doing. And um, eventually we moved to, um, to Dallas where we were able to move into a school system that was sort of the most upper class community in Dallas at that time. But Mm -hmm. this is now 1981, where there was a lot of racism in the city of Dallas. It was still an oil man's city. And here we are, we still have our Indian, our South African accent, but now we're wearing Wranglers and (laughs) and we walk into this very yuppie community. they just didn't know what to do with us. And so there was a lot of racial undertones in the way they communicated with us. We were ignored. We were accused of cheating. It was a very difficult place to move to at that time. And it was, Mm -hmm. we were the only non-white family in the entire school district at that time. And so it was a very difficult process, but we made it through. (laughs) We, (laughs) We survived that. And uh, so, you know, education has always been probably one of the cornerstones of why we always moved places, why my grandparents who lived in a small village in in Gujarat left because of the opportunities that they saw elsewhere, Mm -hmm. why my parents left South Africa for the opportunities they saw elsewhere. And, And throughout this process, I think they always looked to see what was better and important for the next generation, mm-hmm. which is what I think all immigrants do. They're always, they're looking well beyond their personal circumstances and taking risks and, and come out of a comfort zone uh, and leave very secure family social strata to move to an unknown place and start all over again. So, yeah. you know, I have so much respect for all immigrants who do that, whether it's by choice or whether they're forced to leave their countries. It's a tremendous risk that they take, and it's always looking beyond just what their own present circumstances are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure with everything that's happening now in the states, it's it's painful in some ways, and it's enlightening in others for you and your family because in two generations, your family went from Gujarat, which is you know traditionally historically a poor part of India, to right. South Africa for better opportunity, and then it all fell apart there. And now they came right. to th- this country and we're going through, honestly, very similar rhetoric and ideas of what happened with apartheid and so many of these other oppressive governments. That's right. And we've been here now for 40 years. We're, mm-hmm. We've been very active participants in the community. And this is the first time in 40 years that we actually feel in some ways threatened, yeah. whether it's by the rhetoric or whether it's physically there have been so many incidents of people around us who have been subjected to racism. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so hard to imagine that after all these years, after all the progress we've made, yeah. having a black president, it's just unbelievable that we've sort of taken a step back multiple generations. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And that's why I think, it, you know, it's so important. My grandparents were very involved civically and politically in South Africa. In fact, my grandfather, he had a a retail store and he was one of the leaders in the South African community at that time, in the Indian community. But he he had a real strong sense of kinship with other non-whites at that time. And in fact, 
at the time, uh, the ANC was just sort of in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And um, he knew a lot of the leaders in the, in the African National Congress. And they would secretly meet in the back of his door at night. And that's kind of where they had some of their first meetings mm-hmm. was with, uh, with them. And so my family has always been very civically engaged. So even though we weren't able to do business legally with other groups, Politically, we were simpatico. You know, mm-hmm. we we had very close friends who were exiled to Robben Island with Nelson wow. Mandela. So the South African Indians were very closely politically aligned with the Africans, uh, right. Black Africans. And there's a very rich history with that as well. And I know you're taking so that political activism here very seriously, right? Yeah, I, I think there's such a concerted effort in this country right now to erode what's the most essential values and principles that makes mm-hmm. our country great. And in some ways, I feel like with the whole immigration issue that we're having today, we've kind of lost our soul. And it's not much different than the kind of the worst thugs and dictators and white mm-hmm. supremacists who ruled South Africa or even ruled Uganda, which is where my, my husband came from. We, you know, we weren't citizens there. We couldn't vote. We didn't have a voice there. But that's why I've become really passionate about civil disobedience here, civil engagement, and, you know, the privilege to cast your vote and have a seat at the table is so important right now. And so we've been here for over 40 years. And what's so interesting in the city of Dallas or in in the South, right? So typically, there's this idea that the South is, you know, very Southern and very conservative and and very homogeneous. But in fact, it's, it's such a diverse community. So many South Asians have moved to Texas. There's so many Asian Americans and they've come here for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, Asian Americans, I think, are going to be one of the largest minorities in the entire United States in the next few decades, mm-hmm. um, which means that, you know, we have a lot of tremendous economic power. And on average, I think we have a very high educational and economic income level. And we contribute professionally in all industries. All this meaning that we yield a lot of influence. And significantly, we, you know, we contribute to the economy and the tax base. The population of Asian Americans in the U.S. has already risen quite dramatically in the past few decades, growing by 72% between 2000 and 2015, according to the Pew Research Center. To Kamini's points, this growth will likely continue, as Asian Americans are expected to comprise 38% of all U.S. immigrants by 2055. But all that said, we really participate in an abysmal rate in the electoral (laughs) process. Right. So there was um, a Pew Research study that was done that showed that only 50% of all eligible Asian voters are registered to vote. So we're leaving a lot of, it's crazy. There's so many people who choose not to participate in the process. So I had an awakening November 16th. Everyone around me did. And my cousin and I thought, like, what could we do? So we're very involved in the local politics. But we decided we'd sort of start this grassroots effort here in Dallas to increase the South Asian participation in politics. So we started a little group called SAVE, which stands for South Asian Americans for Voter Education, Mm -hmm. Engagement, and Empowerment. And we've been doing voter registration drives at temples and mosques. We're conducting meet and greets with local, state, and national candidates. Um, in the spring, we had invited a small group of South Asians in the community to meet U.S. Congressman Beto O'Rourke. And, you know, what we're doing is we're just giving people an opportunity to meet their candidates, but more importantly, giving the candidates an opportunity to meet the South Asian community. Mm-hmm. So our goal is not really to do any fundraising, but we really think that first they need to understand the depth and breadth of our community. 
so that's sort of the work that we're doing on a very grassroots level. Yeah, here. I mean, that's amazing. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. I'm, I imagine that you've spoken to your, your father and your grandparents even about their political activism in South Africa. And there's obviously so many direct parallels to what they went through in the community mobilization with what you're doing. What are some of the yeah. lessons that you've taken away from their experience? You know, I think it always goes back to every individual has an opportunity, a responsibility, and a privilege to do something on their own. So even though our little effort is very localized to our community here in Dallas, every single voice actually makes an impact and makes a difference. And I think that's probably the most impactful is that you don't have to be, I'm a mom of three kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I am. I have a professional life. I, I still have a responsibility. And I think I get that from having lived in so many other countries and right. having seen the experiences of my family and my forefathers and the struggles that they went through because the political system wasn't always supportive for what the citizens needed. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it's a luxury. I, I think it's everybody's responsibility to do what they can. And that's what I would say. Start small and it ends up being something greater than you ever expected. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many thoughts that have come to my head in what you're saying. And one of them is just looking at, you know, I've, I work for the United Nations. I work at UNICEF. And right okay. now the, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is Nikki Haley, who is 100% right. Indian. So in the States, we've had kind of this, yeah, I, I mean, she's done a very good job of disguising it, right? Like, honestly, That's I think right. there's a survey done in South, South Carolina where she was governor. And like one out of two South Carolinians had no idea she was Indian. She changed right. her name, yeah. she bleached her skin, <laughs> she, she basically yeah. renounced Incredible. her Indian identity. And then through that, she became popular. And then she became the South Carolina governor. And then we had Bobby Jindal right. for a number of years in Louisiana, who completely gutted the arts education, which is so sad. Like New Orleans, one yeah. of the most unique cities in the world. Richest, yeah, Richest most diverse, yeah. culturally yeah. interesting cities in the world. And he just gutted all of that. And, right. you know, I, one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of my travel throughout Sub-Saharan Africa for work is that Indians and Black people don't mix. I think in one of, the, one of the few exceptions that you can see is probably South Africa. So I, I don't know whether these things stem from the same idea of colorism or casteism or like this inherent idea that maybe the British put into our heads that somehow you can order races and say that this race is superior to that race. But what are, yeah. what's some of the advice that you would give to young Indians or other Indians who are progressive and want to engage Indians and Black people and East Asian people and people of different races in the same room? Like, what is something that they can take away in their organization efforts? You know, I think that the most important thing is this idea that we have a shared human experience mm -hmm. um, and that we've all experienced racism to some extent. And the idea of of treating someone of lesser value because of their heritage or their economic status or any of that is just, it's devoid of any uh, of empathy. Like it's, it's unbelievable to me what's happening today in mm -hmm. our political system. And it just forces us to realize that we have to come together. It, we don't have an, op an option. It really is. It requires all of us to look deeply within us and ask us, you know, what are the things that are most important to our community? And I think that shared human experience is the most important thing. Um, and I'd say get involved locally, get involved with organizations like SAVE or get involved with the League of Women Voters. Or if that is something you're interested in, we have a lot of local candidates. And it's so, I think there are a lot of fellows of young South Asian students in college 
who are taking their summers and spending it with these uh, with these candidates and working on their campaigns. And, you know, I, I think that there's a lot you can do on a very small scale, politically, civically. I think that's the most important thing is um, there's so many South Asians who sort of, and I've met so many. In fact, I just went to my dentist who's a South Asian and um, we're hosting um, a large meet and greet uh, next week, actually, with uh, several state Senate candidates. Mm -hmm. And um, I had invited um, our dentist who is South Asian. I said, you know, I hope you're able to come to the, to the meeting. And he looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 I don't do that kind of stuff. And I said, what do you mean you don't do that kind of stuff? He, his response was, I don't get involved politically. You know, I take care of my family, I run my business, and that's all I need to do. I don't want to get involved in the politics. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of the thing that we've got to start changing. And I have so much hope that this next generation of kids who are growing up seeing the things that they are, you know, experiencing Parkland and experiencing mm -hmm. Santa Fe shootings, seeing that, you know, if they don't have a voice at the table, this is what happens. We lose our soul. Yeah. And, um, and so it's, it might take a generation before, you know, an immigrant family uh, comes to that realization. But once they feel vested in the system and once they feel vested in society and look beyond just uh, what their immediate needs are as a family, that's how you build this kind of activism. Yeah, I, I really have hope. Yeah, I, I feel really good about the next generation of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I'm growing up, I heard a term thrown out a lot by the Republican Party, and that's I'm socially progressive but fiscally conservative as though you can somehow yeah. separate economic well-being from political stances right yeah. but yeah. i think you know now, it's so interesting you brought that up because yeah. we um we conducted a um a survey through save um last last year and um you know we asked we asked um we asked that very uh, specific question which is uh, how do you view yourself and the majority of the people said the exact same thing. Yeah. Fiscally, yeah, fiscally conservative, but socially progressive. Um, and um, and so there's such a disconnect, I yeah, think, between... Absolutely. The, yeah, and it's so intertwined. Um, and so that's sort of, there's so much education that needs to be done. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, you cannot separate all of these things. You mm -hmm. cannot isolate yourself from the rest of the community you have a responsibility there's intersections in so many different especially now socially and politically um education wise in every sense of the word there there is an integration and we have to come to that realization mm -hmm. yeah i think so many indians have lived in this existence where they can somehow separate that because they have been very economically successful without right. engaging politically but for so many reasons that's coming to a heat and now they realize if i want to participate economically to the full extent i'm going to have to fight politically for the rights that i thought i had when i first came here that's right that's right yeah okay um i'd like to shift gears a bit and i would love to talk more about you know your personal life especially being a an indian a south asian woman kind of finding yourself or growing up in two very different contacts south africa and texas <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned that you've kind of came into your Indian identity when you were in university. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So um, because I went to a high school that was predominantly white, um, you know, the only non-whites were my family and my extended family. Um, and then a couple of other Indian families who we, we went to SMU. And so their um, parents were professors at SMU. So, so that was the 
understand of um, our high school experience. But when we came to SMU, which is where um, I went to undergrad, uh, all of a sudden there were so many other South Asians. And for the first time, we really felt sort of connected to the, um, the South Asian community. But more importantly, um, the opportunity to study um, uh, I studied economics and history. And, and again, I think I was really intrigued by how economic security, economic empowerment really drives um, most of our historical experiences. And so uh, one of, I, I took a lot of uh, literature classes and it was so great to finally read women of South Asian backgrounds and mm-hmm. um, women um, from the Middle East and women um, from Africa. Um, and it was, I finally sort of felt this connection to their experiences and my experience growing up in South Africa and in Africa, um, in, in Texas. So it was really, it was, it was a really uh, great awakening for me to be able to, to read other people's experiences that I could connect with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, so after undergrad, where did you go next? Um, so I'm an occupational therapist. I went into healthcare. Um, mm. And, um, but I met my husband, uh, an undergrad, mm-hmm. and he's of South Asian descent too, but, um, I'm Hindu and he is a smiley. Oh. And, um, so, uh, you know, going back to this, uh, this idea of, you know, how did we, um, being of Indian origin, <laughs> you have a lot of social constructs that your family, <laughs> um, abides by. And, Don't and I so, know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and, you know, I think it's interesting uh, when when uh, my grandparents moved to South Africa and then when we moved to the United States, what we really, what I noticed was in some ways how much more conservative the Indians in South Africa mm-hmm. still are than they than are in India, for example. Yeah, diaspora ways, communities like they, have often noted to be more conservative than their counterparts mm-hmm. back home, quote unquote. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know what that is, whether they're holding on to something that's so yeah, dear to I think them. I, that's the theory that I've heard, that they come in. Like, there's, it's funny. I, I've been in New York for a long time, and there's this one part of New York City called Brighton Beach, which is Russian, mm-hmm. like totally Russian. But one of my French-Russian friends told me it's like Russia from like 1982. Like, it's yes. this, people dress the same way, they talk the same way, they act the same way, and they have the same cultural values as 1982 Russia because that's what yeah. they came over with. So they kind of isolate themselves. They build up they're this kind stuck. of internal culture. Yeah. And then they're like, oh yeah, this is totally yeah. normal to do this. Like, no, it's yeah. really not. Like if you had gone back to Russia, I guess you couldn't, but if you had gone back to Russia yeah. in the last 20 years, that's you would have seen place. some things would have changed, you know? Yes. Yeah. So that's what we noticed when we moved to, um, when we moved to the United States, yeah. it was just most of our family is still in South Africa. And mm-hmm. there was really such a disconnect in terms of like how we lived our lives here <laughs> and how they lived their lives there. And so when my husband and I met in college, it was, um, it took a long time uh, for them to accept me marrying someone who was not of the same religion, mm-hmm. much less the same caste and, you know, all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. my oldest sister, because my parents moved here and were still, you know, first generation immigrants, they, um, they still abided by sort of the same like ideas of marriage and things like that. And so my oldest sister um, had an arranged marriage, met her husband and over the span of a weekend, uh, made the determination collectively with my parents that um, wow. this is the right guy. So, so that happened and they probably are the most romantic and most loving couple that I've ever known. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> It works sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. so I'm sure, you know, you said, you mentioned that your husband 
grew up in Uganda, that his family traced their roots through East Africa. Were there kind of some similarities or support that you found with each other that you may not have necessarily found with a person of Indian origin who grew up in the States or in India? You know, there is this idea and, you know, our parents worked really hard. So they, you know, they were expelled from East Africa, from Uganda by Idi Amin mm-hmm. and um, were refugees in Canada and made their way to Texas at about the same time we did. And um, as immigrant children, when you have a family business, everybody's involved in the family business. So we made beds, cleaned out ashtrays in the mm-hmm. motel, and, you know, everyone was involved in the, the business. And, and, and his family did a very similar thing. And so we sort of understood, sort of, you know, economically, we're kind of in this, financially, we're in the same situation. We were struggling immigrant families. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked hard for our family businesses from a very young age. There are a lot of things that sort of brought us together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that strong sense work ethic, uh, along with um, a mission to make sure that everyone was educated, um, all of those things, we had a shared experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, even though they were uh, Muslim and were Hindus, uh, we spoke the same language because we're all from Gujarat. Right. Um, so there were a lot of those things that brought us together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think the idea that uh, we understood that our parents went through so much to get us to where we were at this mm-hmm. point really did, you know, whether it was conscious or not, uh, brought us together in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if this is a answerable question, but that immigrant story is obviously so strong for a lot of people who come directly from India to the States or directly from India to Canada. How do you Mm -hmm. feel that the added continent of Africa, that those two, three generations that were in the continent, how does that change the narrative or the thinking behind the struggles that your families had? You know, I think in some ways it makes it richer and deeper in the sense that so multiple generations have to get out of their comfort zone, yeah. first of all. And then the other is that we had to integrate into other communities. We had to understand how the, how the British treated us, how Africans were treated, how you know, we were in a very diverse community. If you come from a village in India, um, that's all you know. You, it's, everybody looks the same. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks that, you know, feels the same, thinks the same. Um, so it's a very similar experience. But when you've been in places like Africa, um, where there, it's so much more diverse, I think it makes the adaptation to migrate again much easier. Yeah, absolutely. So I, is, there, is there a certain sense of exhaustion that I think your family has had? You know, having, like you said, several generations of having to be out of your comfort zone and then arguably with what's happening now in the States, that might happen again in some degree. I don't know. I just think that it gives you, um, I don't know. I, I think it builds stamina. I think it, mm-hmm. it, and maybe you've seen this with other families too. And, and that is like, you always look at it from, um, my parents always looked at it from the perspective of this being a, an opportunity, like mm-hmm. um, it, that it's a privilege to be able to do something like this. And I think we've always sort of looked at it like that. It's never been that we have to leave and you know, that this is such a difficult process. Of course, mm-hmm. it's a very difficult process, but the idea that we have the opportunity to do something and be someplace that is welcoming and open and free is um, it's such an opportunity. And mm-hmm. I, I think most immigrants feel that way, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing it because they know that it's going to, it means that it's going to be something, that, that there's a better future ahead. Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it. Something positive that lies ahead rather than leaving something negative. Yeah. Do you get a chance to go back to South Africa often? 
you know, we haven't, we haven't made it yet. And um, we haven't gone, our, our children were still fairly young, but we're, um, we're planning our trip next year. What do you... But we've had, you know, most of our family comes here. They've come for mm-hmm. our weddings. And um, so we've seen a lot of, of our family. But, yeah, we're finally going to be at the point where we can go next year. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think your kids are going to react? You know, we took them to India for the first time in December. And oh, wow. um, we weren't sure um, what to expect. Uh, mm-hmm. I've only been to India one time. Same with my husband. So we're really, you know, we're visitors to India. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't sure how they would react to it, but we uh, we all came back with just an incredibly powerful experience, mm-hmm. um, and they loved it. So I, I have a feeling that they're going to feel a real sense of belonging in South Africa, um, mm-hmm. simply because we'll we'll actually know people there, and we'll be in homes of family members. Um, so they'll they'll feel a connection, mm-hmm. and and because I was born there, um, I think that that'll make a big difference. Yeah. It won't seem so distant for them. Absolutely. Are you you all planning to go to Uganda as well? Yeah, we're planning to do the whole thing. Oh, that's great. Maybe I'll see you there. I might be going soon. Oh, good. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kamini. South Africa is one of my favorite places in the world, and hearing your story has added a whole new dimension to the country for me. It's rare to hear about the South Asian female perspective of its history. Safe travels to you and your family, and we'll hopefully speak again soon. Bye. Thanks to all our listeners. Join us next time on They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of They See Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our intro and outro music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash McDade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Kamini Mamdani.